We're going to be starting today a series of messages focusing on the life of David. Of course, we're not going to abandon the Gospel of John. We'll just go back and forth between Old Testament and New Testament as the Lord leads. But I thought I would uh, go back into some familiar episodes from the life of David and see how they apply to our lives today. 1 Samuel 16, in 1934, the hellfire and brimstone preacher named Mordecai Ham brought his big tent revival to Charlotte, North Carolina. His revival would last for 12 weeks, and during that time, hundreds of decisions of Christ were made at those meetings. But none more significant than one made by a 16-year-old boy. Here's what the young man recalled about that. He said, There I sat spellbound at the preacher's messages on everything from the second coming of Christ to sins of every stripe and the reality of hell. After several nights, I became deeply convicted about my sinfulness. How could this evangelist be talking directly to me? What was slowly dawning on me during those weeks was the miserable realization that I did not know Jesus for myself. Then the day came, November the 1st, 1934. The Holy Spirit dramatically moved in the heart of that young man. In fact, Mordecai Ham's first words of his sermon that evening were this, There's a great sinner in this place tonight. That pierced the young boy's heart. He was wrecked with instant waves of guilt. Ham blasted out another scorching sermon and then gave an invitation for everybody to respond. And as the classic hymn, Just As I Am, was being played, hundreds came forward to walk the so-called sawdust trail to the altar. He said, that boy, I walked down to the front feeling as if I had lead weights attached to my feet. After praying a simple prayer and repenting of his sins, the boy filled out a commitment card indicating his decision for Christ that he had made that night and then he returned home. Here's what he remembered. He said, I went upstairs to my room, standing at the window. I looked out across the fields at the moonlit night. I got down on my knees beside my bed and I whispered this, Lord, I don't know what happened tonight. But you do. Thank you for saving me. That young boy was Billy Graham. And the little card he filled out is actually a historic artifact that is today at the Billy Graham Library down in Charlotte. If you travel there, you can see it. Along with all kinds of other memorabilia from his ministry. But it's amazing to think that a simple prayer prayed by a little country boy in a tent would go on to impact millions of people for Christ. One prayer, one decision, one moment. Billy Graham's conversion in that sawdust tent revival shows, friend, that the work of God often has a humble beginning. And the same is true of David, whose turning point in his life came in an equally unpredictable way. He is fresh from the pastures as a teenager, singled out by God's prophet, anointed and set aside for a unique destiny that would change the course of history and then impact lives for years to come. One boy, 
One moment, one decision. Now the name David, as we begin to study his life, you should know that that name means beloved. And he's the only person in the Scriptures known as a man after God's heart. When God made David, it is sure that he poured many gifts and talents into this young life and then I think he broke the mold. David had the strength of a warrior. He had the mind of a philosopher. He had the heart of a poet and he had the charisma of a king. In fact, did you know that there is more written of the life of David, 66 chapters total in the Bible, than any other individual besides that of the Lord Jesus. Not only would he establish the capital city of Jerusalem, not only would he have psalms and hymns pour from his pen, he wrote 73 of the psalms, but his lineage and his descendants would eventually give way to the Messiah, the Christ, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Now in 1 Samuel 16, we read about David's humble beginnings. And here is where he is called and anointed to be the future king of Israel. Now you may be sitting out there today thinking, well, well, Derek, I'm not a poet. Derek, I'm not a prince. I'm not a politician. I'm not a preacher. But friend, I want you to know today that God has called each of us with divine purpose today. God has a plan. God has a story, a destiny in mind for you and for me. And in this message, we are going to discover how God's calling is radically different from that of the world. You're going to find out today that it's not about brains, it's not about beauty, it's not about bucks. God uses a different measuring stick when He calls a man or a woman into His service. God is looking at the heart. So we're looking at a message today entitled, In Search of a King. I want you to see four attributes about God's special calling. Number one, I want you to notice this today. God's sovereign purpose in calling. God's sovereign purpose. Let's read the first five verses in 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Verse 2, Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice unto the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came unto Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? Verse 5, And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. As our passage opens today, what we see here, the prophet Samuel is in a pickle. 
God has given him the task to go to Bethlehem to anoint the new king of Israel. But remember, technically, still at this moment, Saul is the one who is wearing the crown. He's the king. But Saul, we know, did not have the right character to wear the crown. He was impetuous. He was thin-skinned. He was insecure. He was hot-headed. And most of all, he was disobedient to the word of the Lord. In fact, if we could go back into the previous chapter, we would notice that Saul made the blunder of his career when he disobeyed the Lord. And Samuel came to Saul and basically impeached him from office. Now Samuel, as we read here in these first five verses, is fearful that if word gets back to Saul that he has been dispatched to go and anoint the heir apparent to the throne, then he will rise to the top of Saul's most wanted list. And so you could understand the fear and trepidation in Samuel's heart. This is the classic case, my friend, of the will of God not making sense from our finite and human perspective. God calls Samuel to go to a town. He doesn't know who he's yet to anoint, but God says, go and obey me anyway, and I will show you when you get there. Think about the critical information that Samuel would have liked to have known. But God does not tell him in advance. Samuel doesn't know who God's choice will be or the way in which God will show him. Samuel has to go in faith and in obedience. And by the way, what a lesson to us today about understanding the will of God. We want the five-year plan, the ten-year plan. God, could you just reveal what I'm supposed to do in a dream? God, would you just open up the heavens and send me a letter from heaven. We want to know all the details of God's will for our life. But God says to us, you get going and I'll show you. When you get going, I'll do the showing. You see, when it comes to the will of God, the knowing is in the going. <laughs> you see, some of us are waiting for God to reveal the whole plan so that we can, when we see it, then decide whether we want to obey or not. And God says, no, you go out in faith and you obey what I've told you to do. And as you go, I'll give you enough light to take the next step. I love the story that Dr. Adrian Rogers told of driving down a road one day and the Holy Spirit pricking him as he was going down the highway. He saw a hobo, a drifter, Walking alongside the road. The Holy Spirit pricked his heart and said, Pick that man up. Now I'm not telling you this is what you need to do. I'm just giving this as an example. This is what God told Adrian Rogers to do. And at first he doubted. He said he questioned what God was telling him to do until finally he gave in. You've ever been there before? That wrestling match that takes place in your heart in between obedience and disobedience? Well, Dr. Rogers picked up this fellow and then he heard the Holy Spirit speaking unto him. I want you to tell him about Jesus. This was before Adrian Rogers was the pastor of Bellevue Baptist, before he'd wrote books and preached sermons. He was a nobody. So he started to preach. This little drifter in his passenger seat. When they got to the destination, Dr. Rogers said, Listen, friend, before you leave, I want to know, would you like to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? The man said, Are you crazy? He slammed the door. He cursed at him. He said, I don't want to have anything to do with your God. And I believe that that Bible that you're talking about 
is just a bunch of man-made tradition. Adrian Rogers said, Lord, I don't know why you asked me to do that. But I did. Years and years and years went by. Adrian Rogers says he went to his mailbox one day, opened it up, and there was a letter. Didn't recognize the name. Didn't know the address. He opened it up. Here's what the letter said. Forgive me for taking so long to write this letter, but I want to tell you how God used you in my life. I was a long-haired surfer going down the road with my surfboard, and you stopped and picked me up. It was a hot day, and you talked to me about Jesus. I laughed at you. I made it as if it had no impact on my heart at all. You let me out, and I went on my way, but I was never able to forget that little conversation until one day I finally bent my knee and I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. The letter concluded this way, Jesus saved me, and I want you to know today I am the pastor of a very wonderful church, and I want to thank you for listening and obeying to the will of God. God's sovereign purpose in calling. Samuel didn't know what God was about to do in the kingdom, but he went out and he obeyed anyway. Friend, God works in mysterious ways, His wonders to perform. No one in Israel knew that day what God was up to. Saul didn't know that Samuel was on a secret mission Samuel didn't know who he was going to anoint. And David had no clue as he was watching over his father's sheep. As he got up that day and gave praise to God, he had no idea that his life was about to change from that moment on. And friend, I'm telling you that that same God, His eyes are moving to and fro across the earth. His voice is still going out. His Word is still powerful. He's still calling young men and young women. He's still bringing sinners into the fold. He's still transforming and changing lives. Somebody help me preach this in the house of God today. God's sovereign purpose in calling We don't plan it. We don't look for it. It's not in our five-year or ten-year plan. It's not the choice when we set out to do what we want to do. But God comes in, bless His name, and He wrecks our plans. And He gives us a purpose and a destiny and a calling that goes beyond what we could think or imagine. Oh, friend, do you know what I'm preaching about today? I'm thankful that when we are faced with problems and with pickles, and with panic. God has only plans. God has only peace. And God has only sovereign purposes. Oh, He's moving. When I can't see it, He's working. When I don't know it, He's calling. Isn't it exciting to serve that kind of God? I'm excited about serving God. I get charged. It stokes my fire, friend, to know every Sunday I get to get up and open the Word of God and preach and feel the touch of the Holy Spirit in worship because you never know what God might do on any given day. Somebody help me today. Oh, there's joy in the house of the Lord. Somebody might get saved. Somebody might have their life changed. Some young man or some woman might get called out by the Holy Spirit, give their life to ministry. Somebody might have the chains fall off. I'm telling you, God's sovereign purpose in calling. It's exciting to get up every day and think, 
Here I am, Lord, reporting for duty just as Samuel did. I don't know all the details. I don't know how you're going to use me or where you're going to send me. But here I am, Lord. I'm willing. Oh, friend. It's been said that God's will is like a sunrise. He reveals His will a little light at a time. Amen. And if God's will is not making sense to you right now, in your predicament, in the mist and the fog that you are in, I want to assure you today, follow through with obedience. Just do what God has asked you to do. Obey as Samuel did. And then when you get to the next junction, He'll give you the next instruction. And God will show you what to do and trust that He has a long-range purpose that will become clear as you go in obedience. It's God's sovereign purpose in calling. Then I want you to see number two. It's about to get good. Number two, God's surprise preference in calling. God's surprise preference. Look what verse 6 says. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Somebody say amen. And then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 9, then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Samuel said to Jesse, our all your sons here, and he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for he will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in, and now he was ready, and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. God's sovereign purpose, and then God's surprising Preference. Can you imagine? Jesse has his seven sons all lined up there in a row according to the pecking order. Samuel is pacing back and forth. He's examining each one like a drill sergeant with a fine tooth comb. He's waiting to hear the Spirit of God tell him who to anoint. First up, we read about his Eliab. I imagine he's the star athlete. He's the guy with the rippling muscles and he's got trophies on his bookcase. He would have been a shoe-in, right? God says no. The Spirit of God whispered to Samuel, he's not the one. So then the next son is brought up, Abinadab. Here's the valedictorian of the class. He's got all the brains. He's got all the answers. But God was not impressed. Shammah is considered too. This guy's got a charismatic personality. Later on he may run for mayor of Bethlehem and he'll win by a landslide. But God says I'm using a different measuring stick, Samuel. Don't look at just the externals. Seven suns up and seven suns down. None of these old boys can pass muster. Just looking at the outside. 
Samuel would have committed the same error that Israel would have committed. Because earlier on when they wanted a king, God said, okay, I would like to be your king, but you want a man in place of me, you go ahead, you choose your own king. And the Bible says that Israel chose Saul. Why? Because he was handsome and because he stood head and shoulders above the rest. They chose a candidate to rule them who had zero character but looked like Brad Pitt or Tom Cruise. He just had that look. And Samuel is about to commit that same error until God prods him and says, Hey, I'm not doing the same measuring you are. The people wanted somebody who looked the part of the king, but God is looking at the heart. The character that only he could see. God wanted humility and faithfulness and integrity and servanthood and courage and love for the things that he loved. And he told Samuel, you're not going to find that here in this lineup. That is out in the sheep pasture. Are these all your boys? <laughs> you sure this is everybody? Jesse? Can you imagine Jesse there rubbing his beard? He, he's forgotten about David. David is so low in his estimation. Oh yeah, I got one more boy. Well, I have to run out and get him. He's out in the field with the sheep. And can you imagine everybody's jaw drop at the floor as David walks in center stage? I mean, the hem of his cloak is stained with mud. His hands have calluses on them where he's been holding that staff. He's not even six feet tall. He's 90 pounds soaking wet. He's the run of the family. He's not physically imposing. If you and I were choosing teams to go out here and play churchyard kickball, we wouldn't pick David to be on our team. But God has a different way of looking at things. Amen? Reminded of a few years ago. There's a show called Britain's Got Talent. It's one of these million talent shows that's on TV right now. And a little lady named Susan Boyle got up to sing. And everybody was already making fun of her before she even got hold of the microphone. They had wrote her off as some sort of stuffy, weird cat lady. Compared to the other contestants, she was plain looking. She was eccentric. She looked out of place. She was not an American or a British idol. And no one expected that when she raised the microphone to her lips and she began to sing, oh my goodness. The judges are spellbound and they are taken by the beauty of this voice that rang through the auditorium. I dreamed a dream, she sang from Les Miserables. And after her performance, the audience stands up. Why? Because you can't judge a book by its cover, friend. Amen. And the world was surprised. How could such elegance, beauty, and grace come from such a comely, normal, mundane-looking person? You see, some of God's choice servants are the most gifted people, are unknowns. They're anonymous. They're hidden. They're preaching in little churches. They're sweeping the floor. They're singing to little tiny crowds. Some of God's choice servants, they're not best-selling authors. They're not on Christian radio. You don't know their name, but God has a special ministry for them. 
We look at everything on the outside. We look at age. Oh, they're too young to serve God. Or oh, they're too oh, they're past their prime. We look at appearance. Oh, you you don't have the right look to be on stage. Or then we look at ancestry. What family did they come from? Affluence. You don't have any resources or any money or any personal connection. We look at their achievement. Uh, show me your resume. What have you done? God looks at none of that. We've got so many churches that are so concerned about finding the next pastor. They want a pastor with three or four doctorate degrees that can read Greek and Hebrew. And what God says is, I want a man who's filled with the Spirit of God who will open up the Word of God and preach with power and authority. We've got too many churches, churches focused on the wrong thing. Max Lucado wrote this. He said, we are weary of society's surface level system of grading us according to the inches of our waist, the square footage of our house, the color of our skin, the make of our car, the label on our clothes, the diplomas on our wall. But none of these things impress the Lord. God saw a teenage boy serving Him in the backwoods of Bethlehem at the intersection of boredom and anonymity. Human eyes saw a gangly specimen smelling like sheep and looking like he needed a bath. But God sees what no one else does. A heart that will, despite all its foibles, seek God like a lark seeks the sunrise. And the same God who made you knows your heart. I ran into a, one of my old Sunday school teachers a few years ago. And I had just answered the call to preach. Had seen this Sunday school teacher in a while. He said, Derek, I had no idea when you were that whiny, wimpy little kid in my Sunday school class that God would have called you to be the preacher. You were the quiet one. You were the one that kept to yourself. And I said, brother, I said, nobody's more surprised than I am. <laughs> but friend, I could take you to the place where I was sitting the day that God called me to the gospel ministry. I could take you to the seat. I remember the passage the pastor was preaching from. And I felt like he was talking right to me. And God tapped me on the shoulder and said, one day, that's going to be you. I said, no, God, you're wrong. Not me. I've got other plans. And God wouldn't let go of me. And friend, he had a surprising preference in mind. He didn't need me you know, any more than he needs you. But God's not looking on the outside. God's looking at the heart. God's looking at somebody who will raise their hand and say, Lord, I think you can do better. But if you've chosen me, I'm willing, I'll go. Oh, friend. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 1 says. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring the, to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast 
in the presence of God. You say God chooses the underdog. God chooses the weakling. God chooses the ruddy shepherd or the snot-nosed teenage kid whose life is all messed up. God goes after the one that we wouldn't choose so that when He uses them and He blesses them and there's fruit that comes from that ministry, there's no denying where the glory should go. It shouldn't go to the servant. It should go to an almighty God who can use in anybody. Are you surprised today that God chose you? That God chose to save you? How far did God reach down to grab you? What past did He have to rescue you from, friend? How broken was your life until God picked you up and dusted you off? And said, I know the world hates you. I know what's been done to you. I know what they said to you. I know the pain in your heart. But I want you. I want you. Oh, I never understand the grace of God in my life. Oh, but friend, God doesn't choose the worthy. God chooses the willing. Number three, I want you to see God's secret preparation and calling. Not only His special preference and His... Sovereignty, but notice his secret preparation. David had never been to college or seminary, but God had prepared him for the place he was about to go. You see, God trained him for the palace in the pasture. God used three instruments to shape David his obscurity, his consistency, and adversity. Obscurity. While there he is alone in the fields tending to the sheep, David communed with God. He meditated on God's Word during those long days and those long nights. He pulled out that harp and he, he started strumming and singing praise to an audience of one. Don't think because you're small you're insignificant that nobody knows me, that I'm not gifted, that I'm not thus and so. Stop comparing. Quit doing that. God can use you. Consistency. Sheep don't ever take a day off, do they? And David couldn't either. He always had to be watchful. He always had to be on call. And God was looking for a, a person of integrity. Somebody who was morally upright and honest. And that means consistency. I'm telling you, you'd have to be a person of consistency to show up every day and do a job that nobody wanted to do. That's who David was. He had integrity. And you know what integrity is? It's who you are when nobody else is looking. Because who you are when you are alone with God is who you really are. I've known some men and women who were so talented, so gifted, and could have done great things for God, but they didn't have the integrity to back it up. And therefore they were disqualified. And then adversity. David's flocks would have been threatened by all kinds of bears and lions. He learns how to fight and how to find strength in the Lord by contending against the elements and the wild beasts. Yes, he was small and he was ready and he was different from his brothers. But I guarantee you he was tough as a pine knot. Right? You know what a lot of ministry is? It's not being the smartest or being the most eloquent or the most gifted or having all the resources, all the money. A lot of it's just toughness. Devil, you're not going to get me today. I'm not giving up. Even though I know nobody's being saved right now, 
and it seems like nothing's happening. Even though it seems like everything's dried up in my ministry and the church isn't growing and nobody came to my class and I planned an event and nobody showed up and there was poor attendance. It's just toughness. you got to want to. I got to a point in my life where I said, God, I can't do anything. I'm worthless. I can't do anything else unless I preach the gospel. Adversity. Shepherding is the perfect training ground for a future king. Asaph, the composer of Psalm 78, recognized this. Listen to what he said. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. I was reading a book this week by Gordon MacDonald. Fascinating book. He uses an illustration of the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge, which spans the distance from the East River that joins New York City's Manhattan Island to Brooklyn. Do you know that that bridge took 14 years to build? But several years into its construction, people began to complain that they weren't seeing any progress. Can you imagine that? (laughs) We're not seeing anything. Where's this bridge? Nothing's going up above the skyline. Public backlash grew so intense that in 1872 the chief engineer of the project had to put an article in the newspaper explaining to the people what they were doing. Here's what it said. To such of the general public as might imagine that no work has been done on the bridge because they see no evidence above the water, I would simply remark that the amount of masonry and concrete laid on the foundation under the water is equal in quantity to the amount of masonry visible above the water line. The point is true in building bridges and it is in shaping saints of God. It's the invisible work done below the water line. It's the God work that He does in the soul in obscurity, in adversity, and in integrity that you and I can't see, but God does on the heart of the individual that prepares them to go to the next assignment. You may be going through a difficult season right now in your life, and you don't see how A is taking you to Z. You're at a job you hate. It seems like nothing's going right in your life. You've got problems left and right. You've got trials and temptation. Here's what I want to suggest to you. Could it be that God has you in a training ground right now? And He is preparing you in that secret place for something that you could never think or imagine. David had no clue. As he was standing out there that day when the runner came to get him and said, Hey, come back home. The prophet wants to see you. He didn't set out on his life plan to become the king. But God had used step after step, day after day. He prepared him in the pasture for the palace. And there are some of you who need to be encouraged today because you say, I'm not where I want to be. I I can't see how God is using this in my life to advance me or to help me. And yet, this is how God does it. Listen to me, church. God never wastes anything in your life. That season of life that you thought was pointless and you were spinning your wheels, and day after day, the mundaneness of it, God could be drilling into you the very qualities that He's going to use later on doing two ministry. 
God called David while he was tending the sheep. He found Elisha while he was plowing a field. Jesus came to Matthew's tax booth and said, Hey, come and follow me. He found Peter fishing. Hey, drop your nets and I'll make you a fisher of men. God wants to prepare for bigger things. But He teaches us at first to be faithful in small things. I know some ministry people, I know some preachers who think that they are God's gift to the church. But you know what? They ain't been through the training ground yet. Oh, I've been to Bible college. You know the most dangerous person out there? A preacher who's got one year of Greek under their belt and been to Bible college for a little bit and thinks they know everything. You don't know nothing about ministry until you've buried somebody. You don't know nothing about ministry until you've had to watch a precious saint of God gasp for their last breath because of cancer and then turn around and try and offer some kind of hope and peace to a family. You don't know nothing about ministry until you've been in a deacon's meeting <laughs> where you were afraid you wasn't going to come out standing on the other end. What I'm saying is that God uses the little things to keep us faithful to teach us faithfulness so that He can use us in a greater capacity. And the thing that you may be dealing with right now, you don't see how it connects. David, I'm sure he did not see how shepherding would have connected with what God was going to do in his life. But remember this, God is working in the background. And God never wastes anything in your preparation. Some of you came to church today just expecting to check a box off a list. But God spoke to you today and showed you something in your life. And you need to respond to it today. You're lost and undone without Christ. You need to repent and trust in Him. You need to realize that you're in transition. It's not a permanent situation you're in, but God's taking you to something else. Some of you are, are realizing today, God's been preparing me for something that, that I didn't see before and I'm done. God's supernatural power in calling. Look what verse 13 says, and I'm done. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Notice this, so important. The supernatural power in God's calling. Now in the Old Testament, anointing with oil was symbolic of the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. And David's anointing showed us that he had been selected and he'd been separated for a special work and that he would be strengthened by God to do this big task of leading Israel. Now keep in mind that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit rested on his servants. He did not reside in his servants as he does today in the church age. But when God appoints, God anoints. And I don't know the challenges that you're facing today, but listen to me today, child of God, Whatever you're facing, you already, if you're born again, you are filled with the Spirit of God and He has equipped you and God has given you what you need. But the key is surrender. You can't possess more of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit can possess more of you. If you look at David, you'd say, outwardly, this 
kid doesn't have much going for him. He's just a humble shepherd. But he had the one thing in the kingdom that nobody else had. And that was the touch and the anointing of God. And friend, the anointing of God is what makes you and I different. It's what sets you apart from the people in your larger family. It's what makes you walk a different life at work. It's what makes you think differently and act differently so that you don't march to the same beat of the drum as everybody else does in the world. David had the one thing that set him apart from everybody else in the kingdom. He had the supernatural anointing of God. And friend, you have that too. If you're born again, you have that same potential to do great things for God. Relying on His strength and not our own. Purgeon said it like this. He said, A man trying to do the work of God without the anointing is like trying to set sail across the Atlantic without wind. And I've been there before. If you've tried to preach or serve or teach or do sing or do something in the ministry for God without His anointing, your words will get about two inches from your lips and fall flat. David couldn't do this in and of himself, he needed the help of God, the anointing of God. Listen to me, friend. God gave me a dream the other night. I hadn't even told Caitlin about this. This dream was so vivid, it was so real. It was a Sunday morning, the church was packed, people were even standing across the back side of the church, along the walls, seated in the aisles. I mean, the church was packed. Everything a preacher would want. And I can remember the service starting and the music going good in my dream. And I'm sitting up on the platform and I said, man, I can't wait to preach and get up and just let them have it. In my dream, I got up to the pulpit. I opened my Bible and there was no words in the Bible. I got up to preach. And in my dream, I opened my mouth. And my mouth would move. But no, no sound was coming out. It tears me up right now just to think about it. And God spoke to me and said, Don't you ever think it's all about you. Let me remind you. Everything that you have comes from me. Amen. You have my word. You didn't write that. I did. And the thoughts that I give you and the bread that I give you to share, you're not smart enough. Those degrees on your wall don't mean nothing to me. And God put a tremble in me. He put a quiver in my liver and I was reminded, Oh God, Take my home, take my possessions, take my money, but don't take from me the anointing spirit of God. I can't do it, Lord. I'd rather be poor. I'd rather be outnumbered. I'd rather be a nobody and have the touch of God on my life than to have riches and fame and a big name and a stage and a huge church. I don't want all that. Just give me the anointing power of God. Just give me the Spirit of God. Just give me the Word of God. Amen. See, we lose focus and we forget 
so much in our churches. It's the anointing of God. Imagine how inadequate David felt as he's called to be king. God hadn't called you to be president. I don't think. We need a new one, by the way. God hadn't called you maybe to lead a church or to do something big, quote-unquote. There'll be times in your life when God will throw something on you and you'll look at it and you'll say, God, I can't do this. God, I can't do cancer. God, I can't do a prodigal son or daughter. God, I can't do divorce. God, I can't do... You fill it in. But I'm telling you, with the Word of God and the Spirit of God, yes, you can. David stood there that day with the anointing oil running down his face. God changed everything. Maybe he's doing that today in somebody's life, in somebody's heart. You've been called. You've been singled out today. You're being moved by the Spirit of God to a new season. By the way, you know, this is just an Old Testament picture of Jesus. The ultimate King and Savior to come. You see, all this is pointing to Christ. Think of it. David and Jesus, both born in Bethlehem. David and Jesus, both announced by men of supernatural birth. Samuel and then John the Baptist. Both kings, David the king of Israel, Jesus the king of kings, both trained in obscurity, David in the pasture, Jesus in the carpenter's shop. Both were shepherds, both anointed by the Holy Spirit, Jesus at his baptism. You see, David's path to greatness began when he surrendered to the call of God. And I'm wondering, have you today? Have you truly surrendered to God's call in your life? Sure, David would fail. We all know about that. We're going to get to it. But in spite of all the ways that David would fall, God chose him anyway. In spite of all the ways that you might fail, and that you might doubt God, God's grace is greater. And He chooses those whom you would never expect. Our musicians are coming today. Maybe some of you have been touched in your heart and you know, Derek, I have to respond right now. Because Derek, if I don't respond right now, I'm going to talk myself down from this moment. Is God speaking to you right now for salvation? You know you're lost. You know if you got what you deserved right, right now, you'd, you'd be in hell. But thankful. But there's a Jesus and there's a cross. And you can come to know Him and be saved today. Hey, our altar's going to be open. Maybe God's calling you to ministry. Maybe God's calling you to serve in a new and different way. Maybe God is moving you in a way that only you know because He spoke to you. As we stand to our feet today, let's sing this precious hymn. I love to tell the story. If you need to come forward today for any reason love to meet with you.